Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Todd Marks, who is the CEO of MindGrub. Mark is a teacher turned technologist, and his company, MindGrub, works with clients to solve challenges in areas of mobile and web application development, digital and traditional marketing, virtual, augmented, and mixed reality training, and much more. They've worked with clients such as Wendy's, Dell, Under Armour, Adobe, just to name a few. Quite an impressive company. They've done a lot of interesting things in the space and continue to innovate. And I really had a great time talking with Todd in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review over on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out Just Go Grind on Instagram, instagram.com slash justgogrind. Without further ado, here is Todd Marks, CEO of MindGrub. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I heard about MindGrub, the company you started, and doing a lot of different things. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask here was just, if someone asked you, like, what do you do? Like, How do you answer them? Well, it generally depends on who's asking. <laughs> we really focus on digital transformation. We started as a company, as an agency, originally a fulfillment company making mobile apps and websites in my basement. Uh, we've grown over the last 15 years. And we are one of the larger, if not largest, agency in downtown Baltimore. And now we've really kind of pivoted again to being a consultancy where we're, you know, kind of uh, frankly cannibalizing the business of an Accenture at Deloitte. But depending on who's asking, you know, I say we're a consultancy. Or if I know somebody needs a mobile app, I say we make mobile apps. If they're, you know, marketing versus an IT buyer, I'm generally going to curtail my message to them based on what I know will resonate. Yeah. And your company does a lot of different things. You said digitally. I'm wondering where it all got started. I know you mentioned the basement. So where did this all get started originally? I started out as a high school math and computer science teacher. And when the internet took off, I started my first business as a digital agency with a couple of partners. We had a good run for a couple of years, separated. And in 2002, after September 11th, that's when I started MindGrub as an independent consultant actually doing um, flash application development at the time. And I was always trying to grow my business. And so each of my jobs, I was trying to figure out how to grow to a second, a third person. And I was independent in and out of jobs. And I finally um, you know, was working in New York for a Deloitte spinoff. And the iPhone came out and they released the SDK. And at that point, I had my 10,000 hours, a real need to come back home to Baltimore where my family was. And then... Yeah. major disruption in the industry with the iPhone. So that's really when I quit my day contracting job as a one-man band and turned what was my freelancing business doing websites and then my emerging business making custom mobile apps um, and started my basement, really started hiring. So kind of that was the catalyst was a lot of disruption, the need to come home and having 10 plus years experience that really started business. Yeah. And having that experience already, then knowing that you wanted to grow, you could see this, this opportunity here with the iPhone back then. How did you get to the point where you knew you wanted to actually bring on other employees and bring on people to help you out? Like, At what point did you like, okay, well, I need to have employees and to grow this thing bigger? Like, how did you get to that point? So I was always trying to do that. and But I had to make a certain requisite amount of money to you know feed the family. 
So when I started working in New York as a consultant, I would be put on one big job and that would be my kind of full-time job. But I still had a number of people that wanted small work from me, which I used to be kind of a weekend warrior where I'd be staying up, you know, doing a lot of hours in a hotel room. I think I used to work, you know, 25 of every day, 25 hours a day. Um, and it got to the point where, um, <laughs> where I hired some interns that could do simple web stuff for me. And so I kind of, you know, it was my side hustle to be able to make some websites on the side while I had my day consulting job. But then when the iPhone came out, I took those interns and hired them full time, um, set up shop in my basement and really started to go at it, um, you know, full time making both mobile apps and websites. Yeah. And back then, how are you acquiring customers? Because obviously, you know, this is coming with the iPhone, and you know, it's gonna be growing. I mean, were people just already looking for development work? Like, how are you actually acquiring your first customers then for that? So it was entirely word of mouth. I was always kind of, um, you know, the first evangelist for the company. So I made MindGrub t-shirts, I'd throw on a blazer, and I'd go to <laughs> as many networking events as I could and just tell everybody that we made mobile apps and websites. Um, now we're over a hundred employees and we've done some acquisitions and, um, we do everything, you know, from software application development to marketing, to agile coaching. So the services has really expanded and we have a full marketing team that does a lot of account-based marketing and, you know, SEO and traditional media and stuff. But in the beginning, customers were word of mouth and we did a really good job or I did a really good job being evangelist and some of our first customers looking for mobile apps were Dell and um, Geico and Yamaha. And they actually contracted with us when I was still in my basement. And oddly enough, they'd fly in, they'd, you know, take a rental car and come to my basement and meet my four or five person, you know, <laughs> intern student team. And we started making their mobile apps. That's incredible. It just goes to show the work is what matters the most. <laughs> Can you produce or not really? It seems what it comes down to. And, well, it's who you know. So on the website stuff, the work definitely, you know, somebody would contract with me and then they'd tell somebody else locally. Um, the thing about mobile is it took several years to really take off as a service making custom apps. But those first couple clients we did get, we were really one of the first companies to market to make custom mobile apps. So some big brands came to us, you know, secondhand through influencers that told them about us. So it was still word of mouth. Um, but we were able yeah. to kind of garner bigger brands right away because there was a you know scarcity of supply of companies that could make mobile apps because it was a you know disruptive new product in the market, but also um, programming for mobile apps was brand new too. So a little harder barrier to entry because you had to figure out how to make mobile apps. But once you established yourself, um, the reputation around it grew faster than you know making good websites. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier the networking side of it. I'm just curious on how you were kind of approaching that early on. I mean, it was literally just looking up any type of networking event you could go to like every single week. Like, how did you approach that process? Yeah. So in the beginning, um, I, you know, was, I hustled and I went to anything that I thought <clears throat> buyers would be at. And specifically, I tried to speak and be an influencer and a leader in as many of those events as possible. Um, these days, we you know we spend a little more time qualifying, um, confirming who's going to be there, doing pre and post communication. So we're very robust about those events, and we don't just do them locally; we do them at the national level and internationally as well. Uh, but in the beginning, it was just it was hard work, maybe not as much smart work, but it still paid out. 
<laughs> yeah, it seems like you have to just do whatever you can early on, especially to get clients. I mean, at, at that point, you're going to anything you can because you just need exposure and to get those first kind of customers in place. So then you can obviously have that word of mouth grow by doing good work for them in the first place. Absolutely. And then, you know, from that point, obviously you're over, over 100 employees now, company has grown to all these different services. You know, what have been some of the biggest challenges or obstacles you've had to face along the way in growing the company to this point now? Yeah, in the beginning, cash flow was an issue. So we, I started hiring in 2008, and then we had one of, if not the worst, recession in uh, most of our lifetimes. And um, so cash flow became really hard. We had a lot of great clients, and um, we did good work, but it was really hard to collect and get paid on those on those um, jobs. And um, it, it got challenging. I had to, you know, get rid of a car and ride my bike. Um, everything I could do, eat from the dollar menu. And then it got to a point where we struggled to pay payroll because we weren't able to collect on those receivables. So I had to even borrow money from an employee and you know pay him back a couple weeks later just to make payroll. So cash flow was a was a challenge. We were a bootstrap company. We didn't take any financing. So you know if I didn't have the room on my Mastercard or Visa, I was sweating it back then. Yeah. That that's that's such a huge issue. I know uh, the company I used to work at it was an e- e-commerce company. That's always something with e-commerce products in terms of cash flow and having enough for the buying enough product and predicting you know how much you're going to get, how fast you can sell through those things. It's such such a challenge if you have cash flow issues because you, you are sweating it the whole time and hoping that the numbers work out. But obviously, you're able to overcome that. And with the growth of the company, how have you decided? You know what services to expand to. Obviously, you started like mobile app development when the iPhone was just coming out. But was it kind of an organic thing of people re- requesting different services, or how did you decide? You know what to expand to over time. It was a combination of requests and what we knew we could fulfill. So we started out really on the application side of things, and then people started to ask, "Do you do design? Do you do user experience?" And you know, I I can figure anything out. That's you know, if, if anybody. Or if anything, that's my superpower. And so I was our first designer, our first user experience person, our first tester, our first project manager. And so we kept adding on those services and I would be the first person to take it on. But I was also, as I mentioned, a high school teacher. So then I quickly hire a second person, a third person and and train them to do those roles. Now we benefit from being able to hire people with, you know, even 10 years experience already doing those things. So in the beginning, it was both a combination of what was requested of us and what we were able to service. And that grew from just doing the creative kind of around the core service of application development. But then we had clients that would start out in the beginning, they had no brand, no communication strategy. They might know they need software and they had no kind of marketing campaign in mind. So now we'll do the branding and identity, do the communication planning, design the software, build the software, deploy the software, and then market the company kind of end-to-end. So a lot of our services kind of grew around our core service of doing you know, digital transformation and digital product development. And then we've had a few um, companies we've kicked out around that as well. We have a hyper-local navigation framework um, that we use for a lot of mobile applications. Um, we're now starting a robotics company. We've also pushed into the government services space with a new um, government company called MindGov. So we're kind of kicking out things that are only a couple degrees away from our core services where we can continue to, you know, kind of grow our, you know, our market share. 
Yeah. And with that, obviously you need, you know, the team is so important as you grow and as you, you know, get to a hundred plus employees. And you mentioned they have, you have that teacher background as well. How have you created that either, whether it be curriculum or onboarding process for new employees to make sure they are kind of acclimated to your, your company? Because that's always a challenge for people as they grow, making sure the company culture is what people talk about. But how have you approached that side as, as, uh, as you've grown? Right. Well, so in the beginning, uh, we'd make them um, uh, put their mouth on the fire hose and we'd turn it <laughs> on. Yep. Um, but, but nowadays, we do have a ton of curriculum. We have an entire HR department and every new employee goes through an entire day of onboarding. Well, it's actually two weeks of onboarding, but it's an entire day of training. And then um, they get assigned a mentor. And then for two weeks, um, they have a mentor and then they have a, um, a buddy after that. Um, which checks in, you know, on a monthly and quarterly basis. So the okay. onboarding has gotten very robust, but it does have a lot of training and mentorship. Yeah, I imagine you you need that, especially as you grow to the spot you're at now. And and with expanding into different different services and uh, all over the place, really, like what is, I guess, like what's what's the overall place you'd like to take this company? I'm just curious about. Yeah, so I mean, our mission is to you know, really be the leaders in digital transformation for clients, community, and each other. Um, The vision, though, a bit of a futurist, and I see how biology and technology are coming together, um, which is otherwise, you know, can be called singularity, where they converge. But in that convergence, all the digital products that we make are to have better user experiences for customers or students um, or employees. And so we really operate at that point of connectivity between humans and technology, between biology and technology. And so really our vision is it's that evolution of human civilization to the point that biology and technology are seamless. Yeah. And with that though, as you're moving towards that, And that's what you see. Obviously, you see that as the kind of vision in the future. How are you evaluating, you know, new opportunities for growing the company, new opportunities just to take advantage of as new things pop up? Like, how do you evaluate these different things and decide which ones to actually pursue? Yeah. So a lot of it actually stems from, you know, seeing things like Hollywood is is out there. We just a little story. Um, I had a partner with a previous company, and we were watching Minority Report, and there's a a scene where Tom Cruise took the eyeballs from a doctor so he could get through a retina scan. Well, he still had those eyeballs and he was running through the mall. And I think it was Gap that did a retinal scan and said, hey, Dr. Jones, your blue shirt's in. And as kind of a technologist (laughs) and a futurist, I'm like, okay, so some of that's right. Some of that's wrong. Gap absolutely will have an inventory online. They'll eventually know who their customers are that are in the store. And if their customers have a shirt on hold, then yeah, they would connect those dots. But now from a technology perspective, no way is Gap going to store my retinal information. So at the time, <laughs> this was 2005 at the time. And right before Windows Mobile came out, we were saying, well, there's going to be this computer in your pocket and the computer will be able to connect to the internet. And Gap is going to expose their data today we'd say via an API, and then this mobile computing device will connect to their API, store your preferences, and be able to let you know if uh, an item you ordered is in. 
And so we were able to think through how it would actually happen. And then lo and behold, Windows Mobile came out and we started another company around making Windows Mobile apps, albeit it was not as disruptive. This was 2005. Um, you know, it was really two years later in 2007, the iPhone came out and then in January 2008, they released the SDK. And that was a major disruption we were able to capitalize on. But we really saw Hollywood and saw that they got some things right, some things wrong. And so, you know, looking across the Internet, reading a lot, seeing what some people are doing and then, you know, being very kind of analytical and engineering about it. You can kind of figure out where markets are going to be made and then you can make a bet there. And it really takes about three years to get traction. So you can't just say, oh, there's a great idea um, because an idea is less than one percent of it is entirely execution. And you have to be able to execute for at least three years to you know, get enough meat on the bone that you're going to have sustaining powers. So now we have a research and development group called MindGrub Labs. And we do a lot of work in robotics, smart city initiatives, Internet of Things, virtual and augmented reality, gamification, all those things that you're starting to see become emerging. And we do R&D for three years. We have some client work that allows us to really kind of hyper focus on certain solutions. But then if we see there is enough kind of meat on the bone and traction in the marketplace, then we'll create a a business, a subsidiary um, a department, and then we'll market it and brand it, and then go try to capture that market share. How did that originally come about, uh, MindGrub Labs, and the decision to kind of make that whole department? So we have a very creative office space and just a bunch of geeks around here. And so if there's ever a new toy or <laughs> a new you know, software that somebody throws and gets somewhere, we'll kind of introduce that to everybody, do a little lunch and learn, start playing around with it. And over the years, that's expanded. So we now have a bank of 3D printers where we make robotics. We have a foundry where we do lower level um, electronics and software development. We have a holodeck where we do virtual and augmented reality experiments. So our entire culture and environment has really shaped around play and playing with those technologies that we might later employ. But it, it just started out with, you know, kind of being a geek on this stuff. And when, you know, some new toy came along, we started you know, banging it up and, you know, seeing what we could do with it, including like when Xbox first came out and they had the Kinect sensor, you know, they hit the store first. But as soon as we got it, yep. you know, somebody in the office was hacking away and figuring out that we could get the inputs from it. The next <laughs> thing you know, we're, you know, making interactive software pieces integrating with a Kinect. That sounds like a bunch of fun <laughs> to be around that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And with obviously the evolution of your company, and I'm, I'm sure it's changed. How are you kind of spending your time in the business these days? Um, so I've always been the person that kind of grew that next department that's needed. And um, we've really matured as a business. Um, you know, I did found it in 2002, started hiring in 2008. Um, now, 11 years later, um, we're about 110 people. But up till three years ago, it was still pretty much entirely founder sales meaning I had to personally sell everything. I was the one person that knew what we did. I was our really our only sales engineer. And I was finding the prospects, you know, sourcing the opportunities, providing the solution, including closing the business. So a lot of my focus in the last couple of years has been growing a sales team. So we now have a, a fairly enterprise sales team 
And, um, you know, my sales are a a minority of what gets closed every year. Um, But this has been my last holdout. And so I'll probably replace myself as, you know, acting sales manager. And then, um, and then that's really my last direct report. And so at that point, um, I will kind of serve more as just focusing on the, the growth of the company, whether it is in sales or it's in geographic expansion, industry expansion, mergers and acquisitions with you know smaller tech companies. Um, I'll be able to kind of focus on entirely growth, but across the board and not just within the sales and business development. Yeah. And so with that mix though, so obviously there's a the here and now, things you maybe have to do now, your focus is going to be a little bit more long-term. Are you looking for projects, you know, like a year out, two years out? You mentioned the three-year window for some of these things. Like, what are you kind of looking for as you're, as you're moving forward then? Well, right now, we, we're entirely based in Baltimore. We work within seven industries and we have about 40 accounts at any given time. So as a business, we're looking to expand our accounts, to do more revenue with each of our clients. We're looking to expand our footprint. We have some sales and marketing offices along the East Coast, one in downtown DC, um, Philly and New York. We're looking to put kind of an outpost, a second office from a geographic expansion perspective in Northern Virginia. Um, That's a pretty hot market right now. And um, we can grab more market share there, which is our number two market. So I am focused more on growth. From a kind of scaling perspective, well, I should say it's you know growth in the beginning part of the business and then scale. I'm looking to scale our core business, yeah. um, and even though it will lead to growth, the industry term is really scale. But then at the same time, I'm also, you know, I, I think the expression was that you know CEOs are always trying to you know jump around in the next thing, and the COO's job is to contain them in a fence somewhere. Uh, but the fence is that primary <laughs> yep. part of the business. You know, our primary service line, a consulting group, we're doing um, very enterprise um, deals now. And we want to keep growing that and scaling that organization. We'll hit about 15 million this year. We'd love to be, you know, 30 million a year to two from now and really get scaled there. That said, you know, it's always that innovator's dilemma. So as a business, we never want to rest on our laurels of our current service offerings we're always looking for new offerings. So we're looking at those that are just tangential to our current business that the market is really going to be, you know, steep with in the future. So robotics is something that if you do the math, um, there will be a lot of robots out there one day. So that's something that our labs group right now is making robots, but knowing that it's going to be at least three years before that market matures. And that market for us, again, we're on that, that kind of line between biology and technology. So we're making more hospitality robots, robots that interface with, you know, people at hospitals or, um, or people guesting in hotels, right? That kind of level of hospitality. And right now it's very emerging, but in three years, it'll be pretty mature. Industrial robots have been around for a long time, um, but a lot of that machine to machine and not as much human to machine, which is our area of focus. Yeah. And I actually know someone else is in robotics and have seen or heard about that as well. Like the direction robotics is going, it seems like a tremendous opportunity. Obviously not not necessarily the uh, the ones that have been in enterprise type of situations, but a little bit different in that regard. But opportunities for sure, which is exciting, of no doubt. Now, what I'm wondering about you had mentioned uh, like Innovator's Dilemma and reading. Like, what are some of those books or p- audio books or podcasts or anything that you kind of consume that have been helpful for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, 
Outliers is a really good one. Outliers, you know, talks about how most professional hockey players were born in January, February, and March because incrementally they were the slightly older and bigger kids in school and particularly in Canada where they can pretty much play hockey year round. Kids who were born in that first quarter were slightly bigger, slightly more aggressive, slightly more confident, and therefore every year incrementally they were placed in the next harder, you know, hockey league and to the point that they became the professional hockey players. So the book Outliers talks about having 10,000 hours at being good at something. Um, so that's a really important book. book. Um, Innovator's Dilemma is another really important book that, um, that talks about disruption in a marketplace and how the company that's been in that market but is slow to pivot and be agile will ultimately get replaced by a company that is more emergent in that marketplace that's more agile and can capitalize on that disruption. So that's another really good book. And then I just love like you know, Richard Fenneman, the, the pleasure of figuring things out. You know, I'm a tinkerer. I love R&D. I love knowledge, but I, I can go on and on about books. Um, an interesting statistic that I heard is that the average entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur is 45 years old. And the reason I say all this, I'm not quite 45 myself, but the reason I say this is there's a lot <laughs> of, you know, particularly out your way, a lot of, and they frankly have more success out that way because of the ecosystem, but a lot of junior entrepreneurs that still think the idea is 99% of it. And it's absolutely the execution and you can have a bad idea, but a great team and the ability to execute. And you'll go so much further than having a great idea, but no experience, you know, no team. And um, so I kind of tell people, you know, it takes experience, and that's that um, kind of outliers book. Um, it takes disruption, that innovator's dilemma. And then ultimately, it takes a need, you know, and I'm sure there's a good book or two here. But if you have an out, starting a company is that challenging that you're going to take the out. So you have to have a yeah. real need to do it. And for me, I kind of exhausted a lot of jobs I enjoyed doing in Baltimore. I ended <laughs> up working in New York and Chicago, but I was away from my family for, you know, pretty much every Monday through Friday and a lot of Saturdays and Sundays. So it was that need and my family that really kind of um, lit that fire and was that final piece to, to make it all happen. But books are good, absolutely good. And, and those yeah. are just a few that I enjoy. Yeah. And there's so many, right? I mean, especially as you, you start with one, you hear of some other ones. I mean, you can go on and on. Yeah. No, frankly, I, I don't read a ton of books. I mean, I'd rather read things in small digestible bits online across several publications, but I, I do every, every so often sit down. for. A yeah. And I think that kind of evolves over time. I think early on, it seems like a lot of entrepreneurs earlier, they're reading more and then it kind of evolves as they're obviously in the business or business takes off again. more. You have less time, you know? Absolutely. And what I'm, what I'm wondering next, just a couple more questions here. I'm wondering what, like, how do you manage your actual time and energy day to day and your, like, your schedule? How do you manage that day to day? Yeah, I used to not manage it well and you know, experience a lot of burnout. And when you're starting out, you really work, you know, again, 25 or 24 hours in a day. Realistically, you're probably <laughs> working 20 hours. I remember on average, I would sleep like three or four hours, but on a lot of days, I wouldn't sleep at all. These days, I really look at it, you know, to be successful in the long term, you have to really move to this kind of equilibrium. It's like yin and yang, but three parts. You need a part work, 
So of a 24-hour day, you need about eight hours of work. You need a part life. So about eight hours a day, you need to be not working. And then, frankly, you do need about eight hours of sleep a day. So I really try to kind of do my best to work an eight-hour day. That said, I do generally have networking events, and then I have to do three or four hours of email a night. Um, It's pretty brutal. But that being said, my work weeks are pretty hectic. Um, that I might work, you know, 10 to 12 hour days. But if you think of the number of hours in a week, you can work about 56 hours of work, 56 hours of sleep at eight hours a day and 56 hours of play. So on the weekends, I'm not working. I'm out fishing with the kids. Uh, We just got back from Bonnaroo, which is like, we went to Coachella last year. Bonnaroo is like the Tennessee version of Coachella. Um, totally different audience. So. Nice. Uh, but we have a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I do a lot of things with my family. I go into the woods and go hiking. And so I really focus on having as much non-working hours, play hours as I do working. And that, you know, that keeps me uh, really jazzed about the working part. Yeah. I like how you, you mentioned kind of like mixing it up with the 888, like in over the course of a week, you know, not necessarily thinking about it from purely like work week of like the Monday through Friday. It's like, yeah, if you add up the hours, otherwise, like it averages out to the 888 type of thing. And that is an interesting way of thinking about it. I've never heard that before, but I like Absolutely. that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, and we say this to employees too, particularly for work from home situations. If you have a plumber coming you know, that's very stressful. You don't get to chalk that up as like, oh, you know, we went to the park and then we had a plumber and it's not part of life. That's still work. Yeah. So if you're otherwise have a lot of deadlines and a plumber's coming, you know, we say work from home just to relieve that a little bit. But we let them know, too, that you got to have a good balance and anybody can work a crazy week. I mean, say, you know, on the life side, you're trying to close your house, which is one of the big you know stressors in the world where there's a death in the family right? Those are big stressors. And then you also have a heavy work week, right? You can do that for a week, but then you got to get your balance back. So over the long term, then you say, okay, this month has been gangbusters for three weeks. So now I'm going to take a four day weekend and get some balance back. And you can have a burst, but in the long run, you need to have that balance to, you know, really kind of, you know, be a stable, you know, contributor to society. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I think it's it's definitely having that macro kind of overall vision and knowing that like it's not just like necessarily today, but then how's your week going? How is your and someone mentioned that I think too with in terms of sleep, like your sleep debt accumulating, but if you can get them enough sleep to average out correctly over, I think it was like two weeks or something, um, they kind of play it that way. And I've been kind of adjusting that as well in terms of trying to get that balance over the course of like a week or two of what's your average. You know, they say get you know seven to eight hours of sleep. Okay, can you get that? over the average of that. So if you do have one or two nights there, it's less Then try to make an active effort to get more the next nights. And that can be pretty helpful in terms of kind of balancing it all out, knowing that you're not like chronically getting no sleep because it's just not right. a recipe for success at all. The only thing is though, I think a doctor would tell you that there is really no sleep debt, uh, debt. Like you can't go, you know, three, four all nighters and then just expect to sleep for 24 hours. I think sleep is the one thing that you really have to focus on consistency. So whatever your core sleep hours are, like say, you know, all-nighters just, there's no reason for all-nighters. That's poor. Oh, yeah. You know, you didn't do things. I mean, I guess you're in school. Like, yes, there's all-nighters need to happen in school sometimes, particularly if you're a math major and you have to write papers, but that's a different story. <laughs> different, um, yeah. But regardless, ideally, you figure out your core hours. If, you know, it's going to be a crunch period 
and you're only going to get four or five core hours, try to stick to those same core hours every day. And then where you can extend that to get extra sleep. But sleep is the one thing that that is a cycle um, and, and golf. You definitely have to play golf on a cycle too, because heaven forbid you miss a couple <laughs> weeks, your just swing goes to anyway. But yeah. So you can like sleep data is not as, um, you know, as much as you think it is really kind of like core consistent sleeping hours is really important, especially when you get older, you just, you get forced into it. Like I have seven kids now and I used to, you know, stay up in all hours, just trying to get them to bed. Um, now that we're all <laughs> teenagers, you know, I'm, I'm in bed every night by nine. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm being somewhat facetious. I'm not that old, but, uh, <laughs> I, I have very, very consistent sleep hours now. And I, I think, you know, some of my age and maturity allowed for that, but then it also makes me that much more productive, um, as a, you know, businessman doing the, you know, the big picture stuff as opposed to just, you know, trying to get something out the door for a deadline, which isn't my concern so much these days. And with that, with having a family, how has that over time evolved how you work or how you do business than having the family with it? Well, that, you know, that's a big conversation unto itself, but um, you will absolutely rag your family out if you are in startup mode. Um, startup mode, you, know, you talk about that balance, let's say over 10 years, you want to get really good kind of balance and equilibrium. In the beginning, in startup mode, you are focusing way more on on average eight hours. You're probably doing fifteen to twenty hours on your business, and then sleep. And so your family suffers. So you have to make sure you get that equilibrium in there too. So even if you only have a little bit of time with your family because you're doing a startup, that time needs to be really, you know, maximized. So don't just like, you know, kind of say, oh, well, I'm present with my family. Like actually take your kids out on date night and do something really special. And maybe it's only an hour, you know, dinner and drinks or something, but well, <laughs> not drinks if they're your kids, but you know, <laughs> and, but, yes, <laughs> maybe it's only an hour, but you know, I'm thinking more of your spouse. You know, if you have fewer date nights, make sure they're really, you know, more impactful. Um, because it is important um, to maintain that balance. And so when you know your time's going to be constrained, you know, just make better use of it. Yeah, totally understand that. And and also one of the last questions I have here is just what have been kind of some of the biggest lessons or takeaways so far in your entrepreneurial career? So, yeah, the big things are, you know, as I mentioned before, really to be successful, you have to have the experience. There has to be disruption in the marketplace and you have to have the need. So those are really important. Um, aside from that, uh, you have to make sure that you take some bets. So um, I forget who said it, but scared money doesn't make money. And so you have to be able to have a certain kind of risk tolerance, because if you've got a really low risk aversion, then you're not going to take those bets, those bigger bets that will inevitably pay out. So take some bets. And then last, just be really mindful of money and cash flow. Um, in the early years, it's very hard to maintain your cash flow. And if you miss a payroll or two, um, that's just detrimental to, you know, your employees and them having the confidence that the business is going to be successful. So if you can save up and you can be really frugal and, you know, not be dropping credit cards like many entrepreneurs do, definitely, you know, don't refinance a house. Don't don't cannibalize your personal life um, on behalf of the business. You know, get a business credit card if you can. Um, and really kind of separate your finances. But take some risks, just not too many risks, be calculated about it. 
manage your cash flow and, uh, you know, make sure you're capitalizing on disruption and, and then you're all set. Yeah. Todd, where can people go to learn more about the business, everything you're up to connect with you online? Yeah. I mean, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, it's Todd Marks. The business is MindGrub. You can certainly read more about MindGrub at mindgrub.com. And some of our kind of offshoots from there, our, our government site is gov.mindgrub.com. Um, we have a lab site and we also have robotics. Um, and we even have an incubator now. And a lot of those are just um, mindhub or I think it's hub.mindgrub.com and robotics.mindgrub.com. Uh, but you can find them on our primary site. And then please engage with us on social media. We're really active on Facebook and Instagram. So connect with us there. And, um, and as I mentioned, you know, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Awesome. I'll be sure to link those up in the show notes, justgogrind.com slash podcast. Todd, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate yeah, it. You too, Justin. Nice uh, talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.